So we start a new sermon series today, going through the book of Micah. And I've entitled the sermon for today, Puns, Punishment, and Hope. And I think you'll see why as we get further along. But I just want to observe that there are some books of the Bible we don't often read as much as the other ones. Would you agree with that? If you flip through the pages of your Bible, they're probably more open and they readily turn to places like the Psalms or the Proverbs or the Gospels. But they probably don't flip open to Leviticus or Hosea or Micah quite as easily as the other pages. By the way, if you don't see that we have a lot of kids here today, it's because we have a wonderful kids program going on. Uh, Children's Church uh, happening right now in Bellman Hall. Anybody is welcome over there. I popped my head in there earlier and it looked like a lot of fun. So uh, whoever is interested in that, um, it's going on right now and it's, it's a lot of fun it looks like. So there are these books that we don't turn to as often. Not quite as often. But I'm reminded of the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, where he says, some scripture, no? <laughs> the, the scripture that you like the most, that makes you feel good, no? What's it say, Clary? All of scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. For, and then he lists for doctrine, for teaching, for instruction in righteousness, that the person of God may be thoroughly equipped. By the way, which version of the New Testament was Paul referencing then? He only had the Old Testament at that time. But he said all of it is useful. So today we're launching into a sermon series in one of the lesser books, the book of Micah. Now, you may notice that some of the prophetic books of the Bible have some things that are a little bit scary, a little confusing sometimes. Have you ever noticed that? You're thinking to yourself, well, what? I thought we had a God of love, and what am I reading here? That scares me. I don't like it, so I'm not going to read it. <clears throat> but I hope in our series we'll be able to better understand what's going on there. Why does the Bible have passages that are a little bit scary? It's because we have a God of love. And only the one who is looking and seeing sin for what it is and seeing the consequences of our actions, only that kind of being can adequately warn us of disaster if we continue on the path of sin. And so sometimes God has to yell a little bit in Scripture. Not because he doesn't love us, but precisely because he loves us. One time, I was on a road trip. We stopped at a gas station, and I think there may have been a restaurant or something we were going to just across the road. And so I'm starting across the road, and I didn't do what you should always do, which is look both ways. And maybe I just looked one way. And I hear my dad yell at me, John! He doesn't normally yell. But I stopped. And I looked, and there was a big truck coming fast. I was about to step right out in front of it. He may have saved my life. So when God has to warn us in Scripture and warn his people in the past, 
It's because of his great love for us. It's because he's trying to warn us of what could happen if we continue on in our path. Now, a lot of the the prophetic books, if you've already turned to Micah, and if you don't know where to find it, there's an index in the front of every Bible that helps you find the pages. But if you'll notice, the spacing of the words is a little different from the spacing if you were to say, look in the book of 2 Chronicles. When, when the words are kind of spaced out like this, it's because it's written in poetic language. Have you ever, did you ever have to take poetry when you were in school? Okay, just, just you, Clary, and maybe Ed. Okay, a couple, couple others. In English class, you had to study and read poetry. Now, some of the poems that rhyme, they're the easy ones to understand. But I learned in poetry class, oh, rhyming poems, no, those aren't good. The ones that are really good are the ones no one can understand. They're the good poems. That's not exactly what my teacher said, but that's kind of the impression that I got. So sometimes poetry is hard to understand. Why? Because it doesn't use straightforward language. It uses a lot of symbolism and imagery and word pictures, and there is clever use of the English language or whatever language it's written in. And you don't always understand. And sometimes I would go online to try and figure out, what was this author saying here? Or this song lyric, what does this mean? And there's forums where people debate, what did they mean when they used the color yellow? What was the purpose of this? And some say, oh, it relates to this, and it relates to that. And so it shouldn't surprise us that when we look in the Bible, and there's poetry that we might have a little bit harder time understanding, largely because we don't live back then. And so we don't get all the word pictures and imagery. And so some people are really troubled by the imagery of judgment that's found in a lot of the prophetic books because it's scary. But it's good to understand that the prophetic books don't always use one-to-one language of a literal, um, this means that kind of approach. For example, if you're in Micah chapter 1, just look at verse 3 and 4. It says, For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under him. The valleys will split like wax before the fire, like waters poured on a steep place. Is this saying that God literally was just going to step on the tops of the mountains and the people would only see these big feet, like giant's feet. Boom, boom. And then the mountains melt like wax and this this river, this tsunami of wax flows out in front of God's footsteps and the valleys just split open, Grand Canyon after Grand Canyon. Was that what Micah was trying to convey through the imagery. No, he is talking about God coming to visit him, and he's using language that the people are able to understand. God is a very big God. God is a very powerful God. And you want to be in line with God. For those who aren't in line with God, it will be as a scary thing. But for those who are, it will be an awesome demonstration of God's power. So sometimes as we read 
trying to help us have a framework for how to understand some of the more difficult passages. Sometimes this imagery of judgment uh, is communicating a big idea, but it's not a literal one-to-one correlation to a future happening. So we have to kind of keep that in mind. You know, it's been said that the job of the prophets in the Bible was to afflict the comforter, the comforted, and to comfort the afflicted. The prophet's job was to afflict those that were comforted and to comfort those who were afflicted. And we're going to experience a little bit of both in this sermon series. Okay, so when was Micah written? Micah was written about 700 years before the time of Jesus, a little bit more than that. 700 years before the time of Jesus, Micah came, and he lived at the same time as Isaiah. For those of you studying the Sabbath school quarterly or going through Isaiah, he lived about the same time, but he was a bit younger, and also at the same time as Hosea. Now, a lot of his writing probably was written between 725 B.C. and 710 B.C., So that's kind of where the bulk of his prophetic writings come from. Um, So let's just dive into it, and we'll give you a little more introduction as we go along. Micah chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Now, Micah, the name Micah itself, we don't know much about him, but Micah is also a shortened form of the name Micaiah, which means who is like the Lord? Who is like God? Micah is writing a book, and he's going to tell us nobody is like God. Who can do what God can do? Who is just, and who is is able to bring mercy just like God? Nobody can. Now, he's from a town called Morasheth, and that's probably Morasheth Gath. I'm going to put a map up on the screen for you. So, right here where it says Tel Judedeh, that is probably Morasheth Gath. So, you can see over here, Jerusalem is here, about 21 miles. You go southwest, and you get there. Now, Morasheth Gath was belonging to probably Gath. Gath was where Goliath came from. It was a Philistine town. So this is not far from the area of the Philistines. That's where Micah grew up. In fact, they discovered this place. Uh, Here's kind of a low-quality picture, but it's the best I could find. This big mound here, that's uh, Morasheth Gath. these places kept on getting higher and higher as people would build upon the rubble of the previous um, generations' homes and so forth. Uh, here's a little bit closer look at some of the excavations that have happened there. Um, so that's where Micah grew up. That's where he called home, Morasheth Gath. And it says that he, he lived during the times of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. If you remember from our sermon series, Jotham, he was a pretty good king, although the people didn't follow in his spiritual leadership. It says, although the high places were not removed during his day. People were still worshiping idols. Uh, And then you get to Ahaz. Ahaz was a horrible king, super bad king. 
He just totally rebelled and went to worship Molech and, and the other gods of the region. Uh, in fact, it's so bad that it's described that he made his sons pass through the fire. He offered his children, sacrificed his son to the god Molech. Often we don't, we don't see how bad idolatry is. But here in Ahaz's life, it's showing its true colors. God's trying to warn them from this stuff. It's not that God is just a uh, egotistical God that wants everybody to worship him. He's saying, no, 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 these other gods, they're not gods. And if you follow them, this is what's going to happen in your life. Horrible things. It will turn you into, I mean, you don't wake up, grow up as a young person and say, I think when I'm old, I will sacrifice my children to a false god. You don't get there in one small step. You get there gradually, year after year. Maybe you can think about some of the poor choices that you've made in your own life. They didn't just happen in an instant. They happened by a series of small compromises, day by day, year after year. Now, the good news is, God can and does forgive us of our past. He doesn't always take the consequences away, but he can help us to, day by day, make new choices. And so God sends these, these warnings in Scripture because he, he doesn't want us to end up experiencing the awful consequences of our sin. So, verse 2. Hear all you peoples, listen, O earth, and all that is in it. Let the Lord be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. This language here is what scholars call a covenant lawsuit, or it's kind of a formal complaint, where God has been in an agreement with his people. He said, I'm going to do certain things for you. You're going to follow after me, love me, serve me, and everything will be great. But now he's coming again against his people, up to his people saying, you haven't been doing what you said you'd be doing. You've been doing just the opposite. So listen, listen up. I'm speaking from my temple. And then we already read verses 3 through 4, this theophany, this glimpse of God, this image of God in his great power. Who is like the Lord? Well, here's an image of the Lord stepping on the mountains. His power so great that the, the valleys and the the mountains melt before him. Verse 5, and all this is for the transgression of Jacob. Well, Jacob, what did he do? Now, Jacob here is being used to refer to the northern tribes of Israel. You recall that there was a split. Civil war took place in Israel's history. Ten of the twelve tribes were the northern, and then there were a couple in the south. This is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. Here is some Hebrew parallelism. These two ideas are the same idea. They run parallel to one another. Jacob is the same as the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? Now, what happened when there was this civil war, this split, the temple was in the southern area. And because for political reasons, the king of the north didn't want people going down to the south to worship he said, well, we'll just make our own God. We'll make our own altar. And so people were worshiping a false God up there in Samaria. 
And God's saying, you can't keep doing that. You can't keep doing this because he loved them. He didn't want them ruining their lives. Second half of verse 5. And what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? Now this would come as quite of a, a shock because Jerusalem was the religious center for the people of Israel. And God is saying it's a high place. Now for those of you who are familiar, a high place in Old Testament language was not just a mountaintop like where these guys were singing, the quartet was singing from. A high place was a place where the worship of false gods happened. And it often happened on top of mountains, top of hills. Being someone who likes to get up on top of hills and mountains, I find them rather inspiring. But I don't find myself tempted to worship other gods up there. But they erected all sorts of altars to other gods on tops of these mountains. And they had even done it right there on the mount where the temple was. Ahaz had brought in other gods into the most sacred place in the world, and he'd brought in other gods forsaking the God of Israel. So God's saying, I'm bringing judgment, I'm bringing punishment, and it's because of all your false worship. Verse 6, Therefore I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the field, places for planting a vineyard. I will pour down her stones into the valley. I will uncover her foundations. Samaria, this capital city, you're going to fall. You're going to be destroyed. And actually, that's what happened in 722 B.C. Uh, the Assyrians came in and they captured it. Um, and over time, eventually, the city was also destroyed. This also shows us that these words were written before the time of Hezekiah. Because Hezekiah, as you recall, you read king after king and it will say they were good, but they didn't take down the high places. But by the time you get to Hezekiah, he said, uh-uh, no compromise. None of these little images to Asherah or, or Molech or Baal, we're getting rid of them. We'll talk about that more in, in a, a little bit. But Micah is appealing to the people. God is speaking through him, saying, turn from your ways. Punishment is coming, but it doesn't have to. You see, anytime God punishes us, it's because he loves us, right? It's because he's trying to disciple us. Discipline, discipleship. Good parents, when, when you have to discipline your kids, is it because you hate them? Just hate their guts? <laughs> they say you should always wait until you're not mad to punish your kids so you don't go beyond a fair punishment. But you do it because you don't want your kid to grow up to be a criminal. My friend was kind of a rebellious kid, and driving by the penitentiary, near where I grew up in Walla Walla, she said, look, son, if you don't stop your ways, that's where you're going to end up. At nighttime in Walla Walla, there's kind of a glow, penitentiary lights off in the distance. <laughs> Interestingly enough, I was following up a Bible study lead one time, couldn't find the house. Some guy had been taking amazing facts. Where is it? The address was 1313 North 13th Street. And I finally realized 
That was the penitentiary's address. <laughs> what a place to be, right? So God is saying, I don't want this to happen, in effect. But it has to happen because that's the course that you're on. But as with so many other times, God's announcement of judgment is an invitation for people to repent. You think of the story of Jonah. The city of Nineveh was wicked. Jonah preached, it's going to be destroyed in 40 days. And then what happened? The people repented and it wasn't destroyed. And so God's purposes were fulfilled because he never wanted to bring about that punishment. And all this was really hard for Micah to have to share. He didn't want these things to happen. Look at verse 8. Therefore I will wail and howl. Micah saying these words. I'm going to wail. I'm going to howl. I'm going to mourn. Not like we sometimes cry in America, just you know, dabbing lightly with our tissues. This is a, a Middle Eastern kind of sorrow where they, sometimes they would hire professional mourners to come wail and howl after somebody died. He's saying, I'm going to go through this. I will go stripped and naked, probably still in his under, underwear, but a sign of mourning. I will make wailing like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. Now, I had to get on YouTube this week because I wanted to hear what ostriches sound like. And I'm still a little confused by this one, but I haven't spent a lot of time around ostriches. But I did hear some sounds from the baby ostriches that sounded kind of like crying. And the adult males can make this sound with their throat. Really weird, kind of a low sound. Maybe it's a type of mourning. They also can make a sound that is a lot like uh, the roar of a lion. Really weird. Um, ostriches are funny creatures. But again, they're using images that the people understood in their day. And why are they mourning? They're mourning because of verse 9, for her wounds are incurable. Let me ask you this. Is there any sin that God can't forgive? Is there any sin that God can't forgive? Only one. The sin that we don't confess to him and ask for forgiveness of. The sin that we don't want him to forgive us of. The wounds were not incurable because God can't heal, God can't save. They were incurable because the people, many of them, were unwilling to turn from their sin. And that's, you know, that produced in Micah just this deep sorrow. And as Jesus looked over the city of Jerusalem 700 plus years later, and he thought about the destruction of that city, he wept for the city of Jerusalem because it was incurable for many of the people. Because they weren't willing to accept what God had for them. Her wounds are incurable, for it has come to Judah. It has come to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. And then we get to verse 10. And if you just read verses 10 through 16, you would kind of assume that this is pretty much much of the same. Kind of the same thing going on. But what we don't realize, if we're just reading in English, there are some puns, plays on words, clever word plays that Micah is employing here in his poetry. 
Now, he's not doing it because he's trying to make light of a very tragic situation, right? Uh, he's doing it to, to provide emphasis, to underscore his point, to get the people to, to wake up, to listen to what he's doing. He's using this. Isn't this was a common strategy of the day in the writing? So if we just read it in English, we wouldn't really get it. However, if you read it in the James Moffat translation, he did his best to try to take these Hebrew words. Some of them are just a, a play on a word. Others are a play on a similar sound. One word that sounds kind of like another word. So let me just read it to you here from the Moffat Bible. Weep tears at Tear Town, the town of Bokim. Grovel in the dust at Dust Town, Beth Ophrah. These, by the way, are towns that are nearby that are going to be in the wake of the Assyrian army. Towns that will be conquered. And so he is using either one word uh, that sounds like another word, or he is playing off of the name of the town, the meaning of the town's name. And you recall that sometimes in the Bible, names have prophetic significance. And some have suggested he's bringing a little bit of that into play. Fair forth, stripped, O fair town, town of Saphir. Stir town, Za'anan, dare not stir. Beth Esel and Meroth hopes in vain, for doom descends from the eternal to the very gates of Jerusalem. To horse and drive away, O horse town, the town of Lachish. O source of Sion's sin, where are the crimes of Israel's center? O maiden Zion, you must part with Moresheth of Gath, and Israel's kings are ever balked at Bokhtan, Bokhtan, Akzib. I will march the conqueror on you yet, O men of Marashah. And Israel's pomp shall perish utterly. Israel, shave your head and hair in mourning for your children dear. Shave it like the vultures, bear, for they are lost to you. There's a lot that we could unpack here. We're not going to go through each wordplay individually, but it just lets you know there's a lot more depth in Scripture than we sometimes get at a casual reading. Right? There's a lot of depth there, and so that's where breaking out the commentaries can be helpful. By the way, we have commentary, at least a, a good commentary series, the Adventist commentary series here in our library. There are a lot of good ones that you can get for free online. And if you ever want to borrow a specific commentary on a specific book, I have a, a some that I have access to in my office. But the big idea from all this wordplay is that judgment's coming. And God is, is appealing in love through these word pictures, through these plays on words, trying to get the people to turn from their sin. You'll notice there at the end, verse 16, again, kind of Micah's response here. He says, make yourself bald and cut off your hair. The people in, in those days basically didn't get a haircut. Uh, it was shameful to shave off your hair. You remember one of the stories where David's men went to this 
place and they had their robes cut off right here. So they, their nakedness was exposed. Shameful. Uh, and then their beards, I think, were half shaved off, which sounds like a really funny prank, but it was deeply shameful and offensive in those days. So you just didn't get a, a short haircut like this for no reason. Micah is saying, cut off your hair. This is a serious uh, call to repentance, to mourning because of your precious children. Think about your kids. Think about your choices, parents. Think about what's going to happen after you. Enlarge your baldness like an eagle, uh, my version says, but really eagle or vulture is interchangeable. Probably vulture is better there because of the, more of the bald head. For they shall go from you into captivity. The pretty sober and sombering passage. Again, remember the job of the prophet is to afflict the comforted. Those that are just too comfortable living a life of sin. Got to stir up in them a need and a desire to repent and change. And those who are afflicted, the job is to bring comfort. And we're going to see a lot of comfort as we get into the book of Micah. But I couldn't help myself. I really should hold off what I'm going to share until two weeks from now when we get to chapter 3, but I can't. Okay? This is so awesome. I want you to turn to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 26. We're going to end with this. Jeremiah 26. Jeremiah lived about 100 years after the time of Micah. Right? Jeremiah 26. As you recall, Jeremiah did not enjoy always being a prophet because he had to say uncomfortable things to people. He had to tell them, stop living in sin. Bad things are going to happen. He didn't like it. He accused God of tricking him one time. It's actually kind of funny seeing his complaint. But now, Jeremiah is in a position where he's saying things about the destruction of Jerusalem, and the king and other people don't like it, and they say, let's just kill him. Just kill him. I don't like to hear what he's saying. Just kill him. Get rid of him. But let's start in verse 12 here. Jeremiah 26, verse 12. Then Jeremiah spoke to all the princes and all the people, saying, the Lord sent me to prophesy against this house and against this city with all the words that you have heard. Now, therefore, amend your ways and your doings. In other words, the purpose of what I'm saying is for you to change. Change your behavior. Obey the voice of the Lord your God, and the Lord will relent concerning the doom that he has pronounced against you. Again, did God want to bring these bad things against the people? No, but sometimes there's just no other way. I can remember sometimes growing up, Sometimes I had to learn the hard way. Your parents don't want it to come to that, but sometimes, okay, you want to eat way too many cookies right now? Go ahead, see what happens. And afterwards, oh, I don't feel so good. Should have listened to mom and dad. Except in Jeremiah's case, this is far, a far greater consequence here. And so amend your ways. The Lord will, re will relent. Verse 14, as for me, here I am in your hand. Do with me as seems good and proper to you. But know for certain 
that if you put me to death, Jeremiah says, you will surely bring innocent blood on yourselves, on the city, and on its inhabitants, for the Lord has sent me to speak all these words in your hearing. Go ahead, kill me if you want to, but it's not going to be good for you, he says. And notice what happens next. So the princes and all the people, verse 16, said to the priests and the prophets, this man does not deserve to die, for he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. Then certain of the elders of the land rose up and spoke to the assembly of the people, saying, Micah of Morasheth. Now where have we heard that name before? Micah prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, and spoke to all the people of Judah, saying, Thus says the Lord, and they're quoting uh, Micah chapter 3, verse 12, Zion shall be plowed like a field, Jerusalem shall be a heap of ruins, and the mountains of the temple like the bare hills of the forest. Micah prophesied doom on our city. Notice verse 19. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah ever put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and seek the Lord's favor, and the Lord relented concerning the doom which he had pronounced against them? But we are doing great evil against ourselves. Jeremiah is saying similar things to what Micah said a hundred years before. And they're about to put him to death, but somebody says, hey, remember what happened? Micah said the same thing Jeremiah is saying. And what did the king Hezekiah do? What did the people of Judah do? They repented. They changed their path and the disaster didn't come. What does that tell us? That tells us that Micah's work had an impact. It made a difference. The scary language of judgment and doom had the desired impact in the time of Hezekiah. They heard what God was trying to communicate. They didn't ignore it, and they changed their ways and their lives were better for it. So we're going to see God speaking to us a lot through the book of Micah. He's going to speak a lot on justice, a lot on mercy, a lot on a number of issues. But I just want to ask you this morning as we close, what's God saying to you today? Has God been speaking to you this past week, past month, past year? Have you been sensing the Holy Spirit prompting you Stop doing that. Start, start doing this. Go, go this way, John. Spend your time in this way. What's God been saying to you recently? We may not have a Micah to, to stand up and speak the words to us audibly, but we have the Holy Spirit to speak it to us often just as clear internally. Will you be like Hezekiah and listen? It'll be worth it if we do. I want to get still enough today to listen to what God wants to say to me. And I want him to give me the strength to say, okay, Jesus, I give. All right, God, I'll do what you want me to do. Is that your desire also? Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, I'm convinced that you're just that. 
that you are a loving Heavenly Father. Sometimes the words that you speak to us, just like the words you spoke 2,700 years ago through Micah to the people, are not always the easiest for us to hear. But Lord, we know that it's only in love that you share them with us. And it's in love that you, you try to improve our lives to make us more loving, better people. So Lord, I pray you'll speak to us. Communicate to our hearts. May we be willing, each of us, to, to pause, to be still, and know that you are God, and listen for your voice today and each day. And then, Lord, give us the strength to surrender, to say yes, and to follow through. Thank you, Father, for what you've shared with us so far, and we look forward to hearing more. Live with us as we go through our day. Help us to follow in your footsteps this afternoon. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a happy Sabbath, and have a blessed afternoon. We'll see you next week.